0: Amen. Please be seated. If you are a uh, kiddo, if you are fourth grade or below, you can head up these doors right there where Umberto's coming in, but you can go out that door also, and uh, go and be with our, uh, our Vine kids folks. If you are in uh, middle school, you can head up those back doors right there, and there'll be a group out there meeting in the foyer of Narthex, whatever that place is called. So we are in the 11th chapter of John. And uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And it's going to be the kind of set the stage for, I'm Brandon, by the way, in case you may never met me. I'm a pastor here, so not just a dude who walked in. Um, But uh, anyway, I'm glad you're here. Actually, really am. Uh, There are some of you here. It's your first time with us, and that's nerve-wracking, and we're just really glad that you're here. And so walking into a church, a bunch of people you don't know, unless you're just a crazy extrovert, is borders probably on painful. And so we know, we're glad that you're here, and thank you for coming. So in John, we're wa- walking through the book of John, and we've gone through the first 10 uh, chapters. And in those first 10 chapters, Jesus has made it incredibly clear that he is God. That is the point of the book of John, that we would see that Jesus is God, that we would believe on his name, and by believing on his name, that we would have eternal life. So there's Jesus has demonstrated his deity by what he has done, by his signs and miracles, and he has declared his deity by uh, what he has said about himself and his unique relationship with the Father. We're going to see in verse 11 really sort of the culmination of the miracles of his public ministry before uh, we get into, of course, the, the greatest miracle, which is his atonement for the sin of all mankind and his resurrection. But in verse 11, or chapter 11, excuse me, we'll be seeing the, the uh, death and, and resurrection of Lazarus. And then in chapter 12 is really going to be the closing of the end of, uh, closing of Jesus' public ministry. He's not going to really be out and about after that much, because to be out and about, he's stirred up a whole bunch of trouble with, with the Jews in Judea. So chapter 13. Through 17, that's going to end up being the, the events and the, the dialogue and the discourse surrounding the Last Supper. And in chapter 18, we're going to get his, uh, his arrest and, and his trial and his crucifixion through the end of the chapter and his resurrection. So these last two chapters here, 11 and 12, are going to be the end of his public ministry. Things are going to focus in very tightly in the last week of his, of his life. And that's where we're at. So in chapter 11... We're going to kind of set the stage today. We'll be in verses 1 through 16. We're going to set the stage for what's going to happen with Lazarus, which is Lazarus dies. I'm going to, it's a, I'm going to kind of give away the secret. Lazarus dies, and Jesus raises him from the dead. So if you didn't know that, uh, this is, you can just read ahead. It's not really a spoiler. But we're going to set the, the initial, how that is going to work out. And so if you would just pray with him before we get into that. Let's get started. Lord, we love you. And I don't know if anybody else is doing this, but I, um, I feel like my mind is just going in a bazillion directions today. I've got, uh, whether it's what's going on in my own heart, whether it's, it's the devil trying to accuse me of, of who I am not without Christ, whether it is um, past failures or, or future worries, whether it is just the distraction of, of having a, a kid hang on to you or uh, having something go wrong on the way to church or I, just, I, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to just, to just rest in you right now, to put all those things aside, all the distractions, all of our concerns, all of our worries, and all of the stuff that gets kind of in the way of just being with you, and that we would just, just listen to you as you teach us through your word today. And know that there are people in here who have come in heartbroken, who have come in bearing wounds, who have wounded one another and been wounded this morning. We come to you as a real group of people. We bring all our brokenness. We bring all of the things that are not who we want to be, but the things that you are, as the song said, resurrecting out of us. And so but that's who we are. And so we come to you as we are today. Help us, Jesus. Would your spirit teach us what you want us to know? I pray for me that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I thank you for these people and for this chance to study your word together. Please be glorified in what we do and what we say and what we think. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 11. And it says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. Apparently he was very sick. And he was from Bethany. Not this Bethany, but a village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're trying to go back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, "Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him." Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, "Let us also go, that we may die with him." All right, so that's going to set the stage for what's going to happen with Lazarus. Now, geography-wise, uh, Jesus had been uh, in in Jerusalem, and Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem, not very far at all. It's almost like a suburb of Jerusalem. And where Jesus and the guys were, I don't know, in verse 40 of chapter 10, it says, Jesus went back across the Jordan of the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. So nobody knows exactly for sure where that is. It's probably about, it could be a two or three-day walk from where, from Jerusalem. So they are ways away from Bethany. They're not like right near. And geographically, of course, there, Bethany is up higher and the Jordan River. They're down across. It's a, not an easy hike. So the situation is this guy named Lazarus was sick. And John is really explicit and careful here. I mean, look at the way he does this. So this guy, Lazarus, was sick. Because by the time John's writing this, people have already heard of this, right? He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick. I mean, it's like really clear that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are siblings, and they're from Bethany, and that Lazarus is sick. And this is Mary. It's the same Mary who we're going to see in verse, uh, chapter 12. Is the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So that's that same lady. And this is the same Martha and Mary of the Martha, Martha, when uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Same sisters. So in verse three, the sisters sent word to Jesus. So this is kind of broken up into three sections here, really. One through six is sort of this set up. And then seven, starting in verse seven, is really this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. And they have a bit of a conflict here in 7 through 10. And then in 11 through 16, it's really basically him telling them, we're going to go because Lazarus is dead. In this first section here, the sisters had sent word to Jesus. So Mary and Martha, knowing Lazarus is sick, they're like, hey, Jesus isn't here. Send somebody. Because they wanted Jesus to come back and make Lazarus better. They'd already seen Jesus heal people. So their idea is, hey, he's like really like dying sick. Somebody go get Jesus. So that's what they do. And whoever this person is, comes and says, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's interesting because they appeal to Jesus based on Jesus's love for Lazarus. They don't come up and say, uh, Jesus, the brother that we love is sick, or the man that loves you is sick. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Their appeal is based on Jesus's love for him. When he had heard this, so it's not like Jesus was like, huh, what? He, heard, he hears this. He knows he's sick. And Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So uh, Treb's going to get into more of the timeline of, of how this thing works in the next couple of weeks, but Lazarus was either extremely sick right now or he could have either already been dead or almost dead when Jesus gets the message. But Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. He does not say Lazarus is not going to die, right? Because Lazarus does die. He says it will not what? End in death. See, dying is not an end for God, right? So, which is what Jesus is going to prove here. But he says this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So what is the it that is for God's glory? So I was thinking about this. I was like, is it the sickness that is for God's glory or is it the death that's for God's glory? And if you just think about sickness and death, those are not part of the original plan, all right? Original plan was Adam and Eve, perfect communion with God. And then sin enters the picture and shatters all of that. Because of that, a curse comes on the world. Sickness and death are a part of that curse. The wages of sin are death. But death is always the enemy, always the enemy in the Bible. There's never this idea that, that God is like, oh, I'm working with death. And, like, you know, the grim reaper comes and he sort of a, frees us. from. No. Jesus takes death and throws it into the dagam like a fire in Revelation. That means he's not a friend. Okay? So there's kind of an undercurrent, I feel like, where we kind of embrace death. Like, death frees us from—not um, not biblically, it doesn't. Death is the enemy, and we should hate it, and it should make us mad. And I don't like it, and it makes us sad, and it causes grief and brokenness and sadness. And Jesus has come so that he can defeat death and eventually do away with death entirely. So if you ever come, up, come in front of face-to-face with death and you hate it, good. That's okay because Jesus hates it too. So it's not the death that's going to glorify God. It's not the death that God's son will be glorified through it. It's what Jesus is going to do in the midst of sickness and death. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to come and he's going to do something. He's going to change something after somebody dies. That is what will bring glory to God. It is not the death and the sickness that will do it. So in verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So John does this. He'll do a play on words in the Greek language. So if, and this is probably common knowledge to a lot of people, but Greek has different words for the word love. So you have like a, a, a phileo love, which is like a, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, which is this uh, friendship, brotherly love. You have a, a storge love, which is almost a love that kind of we have for a place or even an animal. It's this very strong, but a, 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 friend, a familiar kind of a love. There's, of course, eros, which is romantic love. And then there is agape love, which is this selfless God love that God has for us and that he wants us to have for one another. In verse three, it says, so the sisters sent them and said, Lord, the one you love, that's phileo love. The one you have this friendship, brotherly love for is sick. But then in verse five, John writes, Jesus loved agapeo Martha and her sister Lazarus. So they're coming, they're appealing to Jesus on the basis of his love for Lazarus. And John is saying, no, Jesus has this agape love for them already. They had come to appeal on that, on that basis, but Jesus is already loves them. See, it's not, it's not Jesus' love for, it's not their love for, for Jesus that's gonna make the difference. It's the reality that Jesus already loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, even though he loves them with this selfless love, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, which is a long time when someone that you love is sick. So, I think between verse 6 and 7, I'm not entirely sure, but I think between verses 6 and 7, those two days have passed. And the beginning of verse 7, we have uh, Lazarus is either, like he's already dead. So, then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But rabbi, they said, and they don't say, hey, Lord, Messiah. They're like, hey, teacher, guy who knows everything. Uh, Do you remember that not too long ago, I mean, like the the previous chapter, Jesus said, remember it said they were, uh, again, they tried to seize him to kill him. But but, as Treb said, he ninja Jesus his way out of it. And I, I always wanted to see that like in a movie, but I figure probably can't do it right. Where all these people try to grab him and I've seen it. And it's like this blur of cloaks and tunics and Jesus disappears, you know. So, But they tried to kill him and couldn't grab him. But they had still tried to kill him. That's what the disciples remember. Uh, just a little while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And you want to go back there. What did Jesus said in verse 7? Let us go back to Judea. And they say, yet you are going back there. They're already like, oh, hold on, buddy. Uh, you want to go back there? That's fine. And so Jesus answers them in a very crisp and clear manner. And it makes lots of sense, right? He speaks very plainly to them. So Jesus usually answers things because he wants them to think, and he wants to challenge their idea of, they're almost, they're meaning the disciples and us are almost always thinking on this uh, physical earthly plane, and Jesus wants them to be thinking on a spiritual heavenly plane, right? So he's going to use a a physical earthly reality, this story he's going to use, to teach a spiritual heavenly reality that supersedes the physical earthly reality that they're thinking in. So Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. So are there not 12 hours of daylight? I don't think Jesus is giving here like a hiking safety protocol for the disciples. He doesn't, he's like, listen, if you walk at night, you fall on rocks because you can't see him. It doesn't make any sense, right? So they say, hey, Jesus, um, why are you going back to Judea? Because they tried to kill you. And Jesus says, there's daylight when the sun is out. If you walk during the night, you don't stumble on rocks, but at night you fall down. And they're like, what are you talking about? So Jesus is not just making stuff up, right? He's trying to teach him something. So I think in order to figure this out, we need to look back at some other things Jesus has said. So turn with me to John 8:12. This is a famous little verse here. John 8:12. I love that sound. He just turning in that green. Okay, when Jesus spoke again, maybe that's what angels' wings sound like. Anyway, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." All right, so who is the light of the world? Is Jesus, and what happens to those people that follow him? They will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Why? Well, because they're following Jesus, who's the light of life. He's like a really big lantern, lamp, light, glowworm, or whatever. Jesus is light, right? You have light and darkness. It's this theme that goes all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of John. And Jesus said, listen, I'm the light of the world. That's me. But if you follow me, you won't ever walk in darkness because you'll be following me and I'm light. It's not super complicated. Now turn to 9, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 4. And this is in the context of the guy who was born blind that Jesus healed, which caused a big old ruckus. And Jesus says in verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Who is the one who sent Jesus. It's the Father. I mean, you, if you read, it's really hard to read the book of John and not grasp that the Father sent the Son and that the Son only does what the Father tells him to do. What the Father thinks, Jesus thinks. What he says, he says. What he does, he does. And he doesn't do anything in his own power or in his own motivation. He only does what the Father is doing. So as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. He said, night is coming when no one can work. Okay, So you have this idea of day and night, light and dark. And Jesus is saying there's a set time for things. There's a set time. We have, you know, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of of night, more or less, on planet Earth. But night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus, Jesus is still the light of the world, okay? He's the light of the world through us, his body. But his work on earth had a set time. He came, he lived. He died, he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming back, right? The day, as long as it is day, that was the allotted time that God the Father had set for Jesus to do his work. That's why the Jews couldn't grab him. His time hadn't come yet. His day was not yet over. Night is coming when they're going to kill him, and his work, God's work, the Father's work for Jesus, will be done. You can't work once your day is done. Every person has a time on earth. Their days are numbered. And you have a certain amount of time when you are supposed to do what God wants you to do. When you go to be with Jesus, your day is over. You can't work anymore. And while he is in the world, I am the light of the world. So if we go back to 11, 9, and 10, when he says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? I think what he's talking about is that, listen, God has set aside. He made a giant ball of fire in space and it lights and heats our planet. He has given an appointed amount of time to work during the day. There's a time that God has set. A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light, right? So God's given, right? You've got a sun that shines, that God's provided. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. But Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. So I think what Jesus is talking about here is they're saying, listen, Jesus, buddy, teacher, they tried to kill us. We ran away. Why are we going back? And Jesus is saying, "Um, because that's that's the Father's plan. We don't have to worry about them killing us. We just need to walk by the light. And walking in the light is the same way that Jesus walked in the light, which is utter and absolute dependence upon the Father. We are supposed to walk in absolute, utter dependence upon Jesus. Circumstances, they don't matter. We walk in the light of Jesus. Because after this, he says, he went on to tell them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go there to wake him up. And disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Because they're thinking he's sick. He needs to sleep. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about that. So he just says, listen, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So if Jesus had been there, he could have, we're going to get into this as you see what happens when he goes into Bethany, that Jesus obviously could have healed him. He didn't even have to go to Bethany to heal him. He could have just healed Lazarus. But because Jesus wasn't there, it's going to help his disciples believe when they see what Jesus is going to do. So Jesus says, let's go. And then Thomas says this. This is the same Thomas, Doubting Thomas. This is his nickname, which is a rough nickname. Because when you will see later on that Jesus gets raised from the dead and Thomas didn't see him. He was, I don't know, out fishing or whatever. And... He's like, man, until I put my, my, my hand in the hole and, and put my finger in the hole in his hands, I'm not going to believe that Jesus really raised from the dead. Thomas stands up and says to the rest of the disciples, so it's like you've got Jesus there, and, and Thomas turns around to the disciples, and he's like, you know what? Let's go too, that we may die with him. He's like, forget it. Let's just roll. Let's roll with Jesus. He's going to go in there. He's going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to die. Let's, let's go with him. I love it. He's bold. I like Thomas. Thomas is a doubter like, like me. Okay. So what do we do with all of this? For one, this has set the stage, right? We have the, now the, the setting for what um, is going to become this amazing thing that Jesus is going to do in the resurrection of, of Lazarus. But that's really just a little part of the story. A lot of it is, Trev's going to get into next week with this interaction with Martha and Mary, which is, oh my gosh, it's amazing. But we now have this stage set that Jesus has said, all right, Lazarus is dead. And the only way this is going to change is when Jesus comes to town. In verse five, when it says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, see, Jesus's love for them is based on his being God, not on their ability to love him back or to do it right or to get a message to him on time, or to do anything else. Jesus' love for them is sourced from his being, which is God. He needs no other motivation to love them other than the reality that he is the living God. And the living God is love, and God loves his people. That's it. His love for them is based solely on who he is. He needs no other motivation. And that remains for every human on the planet. That remains for the children of God who have seen their need for God and have repented of their sin and have turned to Jesus. And that remains for anyone sitting here today who has never looked at their sin, been convicted of it, and turned turned away from their sin and turned to Jesus to save them. If you are in that group, you have not believed on Jesus and been saved and you do not have eternal life. However, God loves you right now, and he's called you to turn from your sin and to turn to him as the only source of your salvation to believe on his name and be saved. It's not that complicated. The only hard part is the wickedness of our stone hard hearts. But God's love for us is not based on our ability to get there in time. It is not based on our ability to understand everything, our ability to have it all figured out, to have all the answers, and to do it all right. It never was, and it never will be, forever and ever, amen. God's love for us is based on God being God. You cannot earn it, and you cannot maintain it. So stop trying. Don't try to do it. It's just the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. Yes, that guy's voice is so awesome. How many of you guys ever heard his voice? And it is so good. He's, he's just let him talk. It is so good. I love it. I, mean, I hope that guy got paid a lot of money. It, was, it would be so good. I love our church. I really do. She just had a new baby, so she gets all kinds of grace, man. Man, there's nobody. Are you kidding me? So, where, where are we? Um, such a good voice. God's love. Oh, yeah. So, we also see Jesus here, right? He is, um, I love that he, John makes this thing. Yes, he loves them, but even though he loved them, he waited two days because it was part of, he knew what was going to happen and he knew what was in his plan. I'm not going to get into today about why God let certain things happen to certain people. I'm not going to get into that today. That's, I'll throw that on Treb next week. But Jesus is there and he is never in a hurry. Do you see that? You never see Jesus scurrying around in the Bible. Every time I leave my house, I'm like running in a giant explosion of disaster. And when I'm trying to get the kids out, it's like okay, I take two kids to school at two different schools 5 days a week. You think by now we'd have a system. I'm constantly in a hurry. It's just ridiculous. And Jesus, he is not bound by time. Isn't that amazing? And I am, and I am bound by the tyranny of it, but Jesus never is. The only thing that Jesus is bound by is his absolute surrender to and his absolute dependence upon his Father. That is what he is bound by. He is not bound by time. He is not under its tyranny. And yet he calls us to himself all the time, he who exists outside of time, and he says, would you rest in me? And we just say, you know what, Jesus, I think think I've got it figured out. I think I can do it on my own. Pretty good. I mean, I'm managing okay. And Jesus, I think, just sits back there sometimes and goes, you know, why? Why do you do this? And I I ask myself the same question. Why do I I try to do it on my own all the time? It's just dumb. Like I'll tell my kids as a dad all the time, if you hit yourself in the face with a hammer, it's going to hurt, right? But yet I just constantly smack myself in my own face because I refuse to walk in utter surrender to and utter uh, uh, obedience to and dependence upon Jesus. He is never in a hurry. And I find that any time I'm walking in dependence upon him, there is always time to do that which matters to Jesus. Does that make sense? Every time I walk and surrender to him, there's always time to do the things that matter to Jesus which is super convicting for myself. Um, So rest in him. Rest in him and and view time the way that he does. God has uh, work for us to do. Jesus is strange to us. Kind of parable there in 9 and 10. He's talking about the context of the Father's work for him. See, God has something for each and every one of you to do. He's created us in his image. He's created us as his workmanship to do the work of the Lord on planet Earth. In my honest opinion, it's a questionable system because I am in a terrible vessel for any kind of work that God wants to do, and yet God is glorified when he does his work through us. You, church, anyone here who has a pulse— is the church I'm talking to. I don't mean church like, I mean church big C, universal church, the body of Christ, but also church, you guys sitting in the chairs right now and me talking, God has something for you to do. Now, what God had for Jesus to do was to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Big job, right? Jesus did it. What God has for us to do, for sure, he has us and he's calling us to love one another so well that the world will know by our love for one another that God, the Father, sent the Son and loves them. For sure, he has called us to do that. For sure, he has called us to take the gospel everywhere there are people breathing. For sure, I know he has called us to do that. Specifically, what has he called you to do? I don't know. Maybe he has called you to reconcile with your mom or dad or brother or sister. Maybe he's called you to uh, invite a neighbor over to dinner. Maybe he's called you to walk across the street to your Muslim neighbor and have them over for a a kosher meal. Just a little tidbit there. Don't feed them pork. Not going to work. But maybe he's calling you to do something like that. Maybe he's calling you to move. Maybe he's calling you to change what you're doing financially so that you can give more of what's already his back to his own work. Maybe he is calling you to be more disciplined in your prayer and your Bible study time or to surrender your life daily to him and walk in his power. Maybe I'm just telling you what he's calling me to do. Oh, the Bible reveals all of our stuff. God has something for you to do, okay? Now, whatever your job is, that may be part of that. But God has something for you to do. And that's gonna lead me to my last point, which is this. Whatever that is, do it with boldness and courage. Look at Thomas in verse 16. And Thomas said to the rest of them, let us go also that we may die with him. I don't know if that's a reserved kind of die. or But I get this idea about Thomas is that he's a skeptic, right? Thomas is skeptical. But man, once he gets it, remember what he does? We'll get to this way at the end. Remember what he does when Jesus comes? He bows before him and he says, my Lord and my God. Once he is convinced, man, the guy is all in. And I think he's starting to be convinced that this Jesus is maybe not who he appears to be. He's like, listen, If he's going to go in there and march into Jerusalem and die, let's go. Let's go with them. Normal people don't just say that, right? Thomas is incredibly bold and courageous. It goes all the way back to to the call to Joshua. And and all throughout the Bible is this call to be bold and courageous in what we do. Why? Because it's the Lord, your God, who goes with you. See, who is it that walks with us? Who would they have been following into the great darkness that was in Jerusalem? The light of the world. That's who they're following in. And you get this image of Jesus walking. And look at the imagery he gives us in the Bible. He wants to yoke himself with us. Jesus walks beside us. He leads us as a shepherd. He's in front of us. He's behind us as our rear guard. And he holds us in the palm of his hand. And the Father's hand is over Jesus' hand. I mean, that's a lot of security that we can walk into, right? And so whatever it is that God is calling you to do, put aside Fear, because the perfect love that Jesus has for you, cast that fear aside and walk in the boldness and the courage that he's given you. I'm not telling you to go do something dumb or to go do something sinful. Don't come to me this week and say, I feel like I need to boldly and courageously divorce my spouse. That's junk. Don't tell me that. I want you to walk in the courage what God is calling you to do. Maybe it's love your spouse. Maybe it's reconcile with somebody. I don't know, but whatever it is, Be bold and courageous in it because the Lord Jesus Himself is walking with you. And not only that, but He indwells you by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. You are indwelled by the very Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is yoked to you, He is in front, behind you, and He holds you in His hand. Quit worrying and get to work. I love watching Jesus talk to his disciples. And I love the disciples because I feel like I'm like all of them. Um, I'm a mess, and they were a hot mess. They were. And yet Jesus is speaking these things to them and is setting the stage for them. They're going to have to, after he says these things, they're going to then walk two days in rough country. I would love to have heard the conversations that they're going to have during that time. And then they're going to witness something that nobody had ever seen before. And that is what Jesus calls us to, to walk with him and to witness things that no one's ever seen before. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I mean, if your neighbor has never known Jesus, then for them to come to faith in Jesus is something no one's ever seen before. Every reconciliation, every time he lives his life through you is something no one has ever seen before because every person in here is an individual and every individual that you deal with is an individual. So every time God is working it's something new and he's making new things. Let's pray with me. Lord, I love you. I just, I don't know what the Lord is calling each of us to do. I know that I've been deeply convicted on just about every front of my life this week. And that is so exceedingly uncomfortable. But I'm not under siege. That's not what's going on. Instead, what you're doing is you, your Holy Spirit is convicting us to walk with you and to walk in obedience to you. And there is no safer place to be than smack dab in the middle of God's will. So I pray right now that anyone who you've laid on their heart to follow you into something, give them courage to commit that to you and to start planning on what it looks like to do that. Help them just step out in boldness and courage to follow the light of the world. Help us as a church, Lord, step out into our community. I know for a fact that you have called us to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one in the city and the world. That starts here among us, and it means in the surrounding neighborhood, everywhere in this city, and everywhere that humans are breathing. You have called us to either take the gospel or be a part of someone who is. Encourage us, Lord. Fill us with courage. Help us encourage one another to love and good deeds this week. We are a church that is your body. We surrender to you. We love you. We ask you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand as we um, continue to worship this morning and